You're listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, go to nakedbiblepodcast.com and click on the support link in the upper right-hand corner. If you're new to the podcast and Dr. Heiser's approach to the Bible, click on New Start Here at nakedbiblepodcast.com. Welcome to the Naked Bible Podcast, episode 298, Exodus 25, part 3. I'm the layman, Trey Strickland, and he's the scholar, Dr. Michael Heiser. Hey, Mike, how you doing? Pretty good. The, uh, the move to Jacksonville is getting realer all the time. <laughs> all right. Did you find a place? Yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, we, we've sold ours, so that has officially closed. So at, at, at the moment, we are... You know, we are no longer owners of the house we're living in, uh, at least for the duration. We're going to move, you know, right right after the year turns, January 3rd or 4th, something like that. And we did get a place in uh, in Jacksonville, so we have to go through the closing process there yet. But, you know, that, when you do those things, it just kind of, it's like, yeah, we're actually moving. You know, we've talked about this for I don't know how many months, but yeah, it's going to happen. So it's getting real. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, what's even more? The pugs are excited. I bet they have a, a yard. Do they? Do they? Do y'all have a, war, a yard up there? Do they get to run out, around outside in, in an area? Or yeah, we've we've or? got we've got some. Yeah, we do. But I got you got to watch Norman. There's a there's a farm right behind our house here. So he's he's little enough that the 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 brush, you know, the the, the plant life at the end of our property sort of keeps him out of the farmer's field. You know, but uh, he he tries to he tries to push the envelope there from time to time. So other than that, we can let him let him out, let him loose. You know, just gotta watch so that they don't go in the, out in the street in the front. But there's no traffic there because it's the border, and then the back is the farm. But this place has a clo- has a fenced in backyard, which is has been the thing that I I wanted. So I'm happy with it. Well, you're trading a farm for alligators, so you got to make sure. Right, <laughs> it's an alligator farm now. Yeah. Uh, no, we're, we're not going to be near, near any, any of those, uh, cause we're not near water, but you know, who knows if you, you get a, you get a, a hurricane or something, they can blow one in your yard, I guess. <laughs> I'm not expecting that. Well, what's more exciting to me is that long trip y'all are going to be taking the drive. You, you're going to take what? Two oh, I know. And... I actually am looking forward to that. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a great excuse to do that. That's awesome. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm or expecting you, it'll take 10, 12 yeah. days at least. It might, t- it might take two weeks. Yeah, tell us where you're going to, you know, you're going to see anything special. Oh, yeah, we, we actually, I mean, because my, my daughter and her husband are, are going with us. They, they're moving with us. So they want to see the Grand Canyon. Okay, so we'll, we're going to take the southern route. It's during the winter, so the heat won't be overbearing. But, yeah, so we'll stop at the Grand Canyon. Uh, they they want to stop in Roswell, so we have friends in Roswell. Plus, you know, the, you know her a- Amy's husband has never seen it, so we'll stop at the UFO museum and you know do Roswell stuff. Uh, it'll it'll be interesting to see what the town's like when the festival isn't going on. My expectation is going to be kind of dead, but you know, so we'll do that. Uh, they've mentioned New Orleans. They want to stop in New Orleans. I mean, I've been there two or three times, so the food's good. If we stay there a day, I would go to. Uh, Stephen Ambrose's World War II museum. So I'm I'm sort of putting that away in the back of my head to spend a day there. So it's just that kind of stuff. But we're actually just started working on the itinerary. Yeah, that's fun. That's awesome. That'll be more fun than anything. Yeah, yeah. I, I like road trips. Um, 
you know, like I said, I'm, I'm sure the, the, the pugs will be up for it. It'll be, I mean, we got some logistic hurdles obviously to plan for, but I think it'll be fun. I'm looking forward to it. We'll have to do video along the way. Seriously. You know? Yeah. You don't need to be yeah, posting. Yeah, we'll have to do video. Yeah. That'd be cool. <laughs> That'd be cool. Well, so Mike, I'll leave that. Yeah. I'll leave that to the kids in Dorena. There you go. Well, Mike, we're got some news to announce about ETS and SBL conference. We're not going to be covered it. We're going to take this year off, although you'll be there for a few days, but we're not going to be doing our yep. full shebang. Therefore, no live meetup on our, 300th episode teardrop i'm just i'm sad about that because <laughs> 300 such a big one mike's been uh almost five years basically five years 300 episodes so that's a so that's a, a good run that's kind of yeah that's kind of crazy it really is when you think about it but you know when 100 yeah i mean we said, uh, we're gonna do so for 200 we're like, uh-huh. and then on 200 we're like, oh we gotta do some 300 we're like, uh-huh. we haven't yet mike we have got at some point to do something for one of these major milestones throw a big party or something because we deserve oh yeah and i yeah i I, i'm a i'm a party kind of guy so i know that's part of the problem i'll just just be filled with ideas that's part of the problem well i'm gonna have to force you or something Uh, i don't know but we're gonna have to celebrate at one point or another let's go to tokyo for because i want to see a pug cafe how's that it's my only reason to go to Tokyo. Yeah, I'll go anywhere. You just got to tell me where you're willing to go because <laughs> I, I mentioned stuff. You're like, nah, nah, nah. So, yeah, that's the only idea me. I have. I'll go to Tokyo. Yeah, let's do it. <sighs> <clears throat> don't don't sure test me because I know I'll book it today. So, I mean it. We need to uh, celebrate. So, having said that, unfortunately, we will not again be having a, a meetup in, in San Diego during the conference. and. Uh, Mike's, you're only going to be there for a few days, so I can only imagine you're already tied up and limited. You're not going to be, yeah. you're going to be speaking anywhere. I don't think so. Are you? No, no, I'm not speaking anywhere. Um, which is nice. It'll be a break. I feel like I need a break, so I won't be doing that. But I mean, we'll we'll do sort of like a, a summary report at some point, you know, yeah, while we, we're there for the podcast. Yeah, we're going to do a podcast just uh, with uh, me and Mike. Just. Mike having a summary of what he's seen and done and all that stuff, but we won't have any live interviews. And uh, of course you're going to be in and out. So maybe next yep. year we'll pick it yeah. up next year. So send next year's in Boston. Get a heads is, up. Yeah. It is in Boston. It so. is in Boston. Yeah. Let's celebrate at Fenway hey. park. Oh, there you go. Yeah, I need to figure out what our episodes <laughs> land on there. Cause uh, we, since we haven't celebrated, yeah, let's, let's do a hundred. Either, either we haven't celebrated any other milestone really, so I don't care whatever it is. If it's episode three, you just make one up. Nineteen, we're gonna celebrate it because uh, in Fenway, yeah, we're, we're gonna do something. We've got to. Yeah, and I'm oh, I'll be up you. for Fenway Park. All right. all right, well, I'll put my thinking cap on. We'll figure something out because I'm gonna force you. Uh, if anything, give let me have this. Let me have this. If you, you don't, I won't. I want a party. <laughs> so let me let me have this. Uh, it's a lot of work we've been doing. Hey, I'm gonna, hey, let's let's give it up for me and you. That's <laughs> a lot of work, Mike. Right. I'm not gonna lie. You know this. I know we put a lot of work into this. I thing. know. I know it's a lot of hours. You All know, right. my my idea of a reward is a nap. You know, it's just. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear that. Trust me. All right. Well, last part, part three of Exodus 25. We're getting close to the end of 
Well, not really, but we're mm-hmm. we're inching our way towards the end of Exodus, but at least yeah, twenty five. You know, was yeah. I mean, it, it, there's just stuff in here that we had to chop the chapter up. It's not obviously it's not going to be that way, you know, in most of the other chapters. So, you know, we did get a little bit stuck here, but you know, I think it's going to be you know worthwhile. I think it has been worthwhile. Uh, people you know, like to park on certain things and certain things are definitely worth parking on. So that, that's where we've been. So this will be part three. We'll be done with Exodus 25 today. There, there, Trey, if you want to clap, you can, you can clap for that. <laughs> We're out of Exodus 25. Uh, this is going to be verses 23 through 40. So, you know, what we've been, you know, the previous two episodes of Exodus 25 were the Ark of the Covenant. So kind of what it is, you know, myths about the Ark, you know, we did all that sort of thing. And so the rest of the chapter, we have two other objects in this chapter uh, that are associated with the tabernacle. And so that's what we're, where we're going to spend our time for the rest of this episode on these two other objects. They are the bread of the presence, the table of the bread, okay, otherwise known as the, the show bread or the shoe bread, however you pronounce that, that King James English. And then the golden lampstand or the menorah. So both of these objects are mentioned in this chapter, and that's what we want to cover. So I'm going to start in order with the bread of the presence. This is Exodus 25, 23 through 30. And I'll just read uh, what the text has here. God tells Moses, you shall take a table of acacia wood, two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold, make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide and a molding of gold around the rim. You shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings of the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold and the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and its dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. And you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. So that's the description of the table for the bread and the bread of the presence. The bread of the presence is going to be mentioned elsewhere in Leviticus, and we'll get to that in a moment, because we're going to need to do some make some comments about what, what the whole point was. But I want to start off here by referring to Currid's commentary. This is John Currid. Uh, we've used his book Egypt in the Old Testament, and we've also referenced his Exodus commentary. So in that commentary, he writes this. After having dealt with with the only piece of sanctuary furniture in the Holy of Holies, i.e. the Ark, God now describes the nature of the furniture in the holy place, the next most sacred area of the tabernacle. As the priest entered the holy place, the table of showbread stood on his right-hand side. Martin Luther translated the Hebrew term for the bread of the presence as shawbrot, from which William Tyndale derived the word showbread or shoebread. That's S-H-E-W-B-R-E-A-D. Currid says that terminology is still quite common today. God's directives for the construction of the table of showbread are very similar to those given for the building of the ark. Both are to be made out of acacia wood totally overlaid with pure gold, and have a gold border around them. The table of showbread is, like the Ark of the Covenant, to be carried by poles. Obviously, the purpose of these is similar as well, so that no human hand should touch the sacred furniture and thereby profane it. 
That purpose is highlighted by the fact that the directive for constructing the rings and poles for the table is cast in almost exactly the same terms as the command to make the ark. Yet there's one major difference. The poles of the table are not permanently set in the rings, as was the case for the ark. The table of showbread is clearly holy, but it does not possess the same level of holiness as the ark, which is most holy. Now, that's you know fairly self-evident. Again, I just wanted to highlight a few of the things about it. There's a relationship to the ark here that's kind of obvious in the design and the carrying and whatnot. And so Curd, you know, summarizes that nicely. But I want to get into kind of, again, what the point of the bread was, because that's sort of what this table is known for. What's the big deal? You know, what, what's, what's the purpose and function of this? The ark had several functions we talked about in the previous two episodes. But what about the bread? I mean, bread just kind of sits there. All right. So what, what does it have a function? What's going on here? And for this, I think a good source, a really interesting source anyway, is Roy Gaines' article. Gain is spelled G-A-N-E, and it's entitled The Bread of the Presence and Creator in Residence. This is a Vetus Testamentum uh, scholarly journal article from 1992. And Gain might be familiar to some in our audience. Uh, Roy Gain is a Seventh-day Adventist Old Testament scholar. And I've, I've heard him at, at ETS, uh, the Adventist Theological Society, meets the same week, really the same you know, place. They, like I said, they, they glom all these societies together the week before Thanksgiving. And I've heard Gain present before, and, and usually it's something, his specialty is Levitical stuff, food laws, ritual, because the, you know, the Adventists are really into this because of the dietary rules for their, you know, for their faith, for their religion. The Adventists are also known for eschatology. You know, many of us would think that some of their eschatology is kind of strange. Okay, I'll, we'll grant that. But they tend to be biblical literalists as well, seventh and uh, 24-7 creationists, that sort of thing. So the Adventists are kind of known for these things. And they make contributions, you know, along these lines that evangelicals, you know, will, will dip into, depending on what, what, what your position is as an evangelical on some of these things. So Gain, uh, again, has some really good content, uh, interesting content when it comes to ritual. And so this article I found uh, useful, and I want to quote from it for the sake of this episode about the bread of the presence. And Gain writes this to start off. He says, Analysis of the Israelite bread of the presence and its ritual demonstrates the theological importance of ritual detail. Seemingly minor differences, now catch this, seemingly minor differences to non-Israelite, i.e. pagan, cultic bread laying combine to convey a fundamentally different theological statement. Let me just stop there. So, so Gain is going to compare and contrast ritual things and procedures. And, and he's going to draw attention to some specific differences in the way these things are described that make a theological point. So back to Gain, he says, the aspects of the bread of the presence and its ritual, which are unique within the Israelite cult, and again, cult is just a ritual system, a liturgy system, within the Israelite cult, reveal the special significance of this bread. Uniqueness is found in the designations, hapanim, that's of the presence, and berit olam, eternal covenant, and the arrangement of the bread tamid regularly, that is, once a week on the Sabbath, while hapanim and berit olam and tamid 
emphasize that the deity resides continually with his people. So Yahweh is with his people. The limitations inherent in the ritual, by contrast with non-Israelite cultic bread laying, mitigate the anthropomorphism of the theological statement. Now that's academies for this. Let me interpret this. What what Gain is going to do and what he's going to argue is that if you look at other ancient Near Eastern bread rituals, they are filled with anthropomorphic language. And what he what he means by that, what he's targeting there is the idea of the deities eating and feasting and drinking these offerings. And what Gain is going to suggest, and, and what you know others have suggested, this is nothing new to Gain or, or original to Gain, is that this creates the impression, and in, in pagan cultures, really, in some cases, the belief that the deity is sustained or placated or, or, or something. The deity is sustained by these offerings. And, and that idea is conveyed by their, their presence, their anthropomorphized you know, descriptions, eating and feasting along with these rituals. And his point is that, look, when you get to the, to the, to the Israelite system, you don't have that. Yeah, God is pleased with the offering and, you know, he smells the smoke and all that stuff. But there are, there are differences that, that, that convey the very carefully convey the notion that Yahweh isn't, isn't coming to feast and, and, and you know, drink and be sustained. Yahweh needs no sustenance from people. And so he's going to zero in on a few of these details. So Gain, along the way, cites Casuto's, this is Umberto Casuto's Exodus commentary, at this point, because he finds it useful in regard to the uniqueness of Israelite bread rituals. So I'm going to, I'm going to quote Casuto. I'll just, I'm not going to use Gain here, but I'm going to go right to Casuto. As I think his description uh, is worth noting here. So Casuto writes, in regard to the table, table of the presence, the religion of Israel made fundamental innovations and introduced important changes in the usage current in the ancient East. Among the neighboring peoples, the table, which was used for serving the offerings to the gods, played an important role in the worship. In Mesopotamia, they would arrange on the table uh, the foods that had been prepared as a meal for the gods, such as boiled or roasted flesh, placed in dishes or plates, loaves of bread, jars of wine, milk and honey, and various kinds of fruit, recalling the table set before kings. The Egyptians practiced similar customs in the worship of their gods, and the other peoples of the countries of the East did likewise. The practice was based on the belief that the gods, who, like human beings, also needed food, actually ate and drank in some traditionary manner, the foods and the drinks that were put before them, like a king who eats and drinks of the repast that his servants have set before him on his table. The ritual use of the table continued also among the Israelites, but not without innovations and changes, consonant with the character of Israel's faith. In the Israelite view, it was not only inconceivable to associate concepts of eating and drinking in their material sense with the conception of divinity. And I, let me just step in here. I would say there is one exception to that. That's Genesis 18, but that's not ritual. Nevertheless, Kasuda writes, though they, they consider this inconceivable, it is related even of a human being like Moses that when he drew near to the divine sphere, he neither ate bread nor drank water. Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy 9, 9, and 18. Hence, the function of the table in the Israelite sanctuary is not like that of the table in the idolatrous shrines, 
the parts of the sacrifices that were just pay attention to this listing that Casuto has. It's, it's, it's very interesting. The parts of the sacrifices that were set aside for God were not prepared by boiling or roasting. They were not placed in dishes or plates upon the table, but they were burned on the altar in the sanctuary courtyard, as though the only way to bring them near to the deity, near to Yahweh, was to turn them into vapors and odor, exceedingly fine matter and without substance, which are dispersed in the air and ascend heavenward. The dishes on the table mentioned in verse 29 remain empty, just as God's throne on the kaporet, the, the lid of the ark, stands empty. The same applies to the libations. The priests of the heathen nations, when they offered libations, would pour out the liquid from a large jar into a smaller vessel, like a slave filling his master's cup, or they would pour it on the ground. But among the Israelites, the wine was poured on the flesh that was being burned on the altar. And thus the wine, too, was vaporized in the heat of the fire, and its fumes and fragrance would ascend to heavenward. The vessels for libation standing on the table, which are also mentioned in verse 29, likewise, again, remain empty. The same applied also to the bread. The portion of the cereal oblations intended for the Lord was also consumed on the altar. The bread of the presence referred to in verse 30 was given to the priests to eat. It's Leviticus 24, 5-9. And was kept on the table for a complete week in order that the priests who ministered to God should have the privilege of eating from God's table. Thus the table and the empty vessels on it were only a symbol. That's the end of Kasudo. Now, again, that's really quite interesting how the Israelites would intentionally not do certain things to create a contrary impression of Yahweh as opposed to the other gods. And it's equally interesting that the, the ones who eat from from God's table. It's not God. God doesn't need to be sustained. It's the priests. You know, and, and again, that has all sorts of implications for the, the trajectory. This is part of the theological trajectory, you know, about the royal priesthood, which we are. Again, the believers in, in Jesus, again, who is the ultimate high priest, and we are one with him, united to the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. You know, we are a holy priesthood, as Peter, you know, tells us. We eat from the Lord's table, too. We, we, we celebrate the Lord's table until he come. You know, again, these thought trajectories are not accidental. They are intentional. They're designed to convey certain messaging, theological messaging. Now, the connection between the bread of the presence and the Sabbath is another item. It's interesting. This is actually described in Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. I'm going to read Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. It says, You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering for the, to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. That's Leviticus 24, 5 through 9. Now, Gain notes that passage when he's quoting Casuto, and then he adds this footnote. He says, Furthermore, 
There is in the bread of the presence ritual a positive redefinition of bread laying by linking the bread to the Sabbath and thus to creation. It is suggested, therefore, that the bread represents the concept that Yahweh is Israel's resident creator provider who, unlike the other ancient Near Eastern deities, acknowledges no dependence on human food. Gain proceeds, therefore, to make some specific observations. And I'm just, through the rest of the article, I'll just summarize these for sake of time. He notes that there's no uh, paired libation offering in Leviticus 24. Bread's the only food. Again, this is quite different than non-Israelite rituals. He also notes and and drills down on on the word panim, presence. It signifies a a personal presence, you know, the presence of God. But again, you don't have the the over-anthropomorphizing here like you do with ancient Near Eastern rituals where they're feasting and drinking. The gods are feasting and drinking. Numbers 4-7 is a parallel to the, the bread of the presence phrase. It says this, and over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put it on the plates and dishes and the incense for the bowls and so on and so forth. So you you have table of the bread of the presence or table of the presence. Again, writes this, he, he says, this suggests that the term has to do with location rather than with a physical characteristic of the loaves, such as their appearance. And so the, the the location is an issue because it's in the holy place. It's 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 directly you know right it's right there. You know, where God is, is thought to reside. He has another thought here. He says the totality of the furniture assemblage means, in his thinking, that the bread cannot be understood as an isolated element in the ritual of the tabernacle. The table on which it is placed, the lampstand, and the incense burner must be taken together, collectively, as the furniture of the dwelling of God. After all, the purpose of the sanctuary is to provide a place for Yahweh to dwell among his people. And then he proceeds to get into, okay, what, is all the, what do all these observations mean? So he writes as follows. The bread of the presence phrase emphasizes an anthropomorphic aspect of the call, at least one of them. Okay, The tabernacle is the dwelling place of Yahweh, so God has a house. It's you know, some, something of an anthropomorphism. He says, this anthropomorphism is strengthened by the fact that there are libation vessels as well as bread on the table, which appears fully set for a meal. We expect Leviticus 24, 5 through 9 to inform us that the vessels are to be used once per week for a libation, accompanying the bread of the presence offering. But this is not the case. That this is not the case appears to be in harmony with the tendency to avoid gross anthropomorphism. Again, this idea of the gods feasting and drinking. This is implicit in Exodus 30, verse 9. Again, you know, where God says, I just, well, I'll read this. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. This is, again, re- regarding prohibiting libations on the inner altar and some of these other, other practices. In other words, God tells them not to do certain things that, that, that the ancient Near Eastern rituals, you know, the, the feeding of the gods, the bringing libations to the gods, they include all these things. But the Israelite way of doing this not only excludes certain of these things, but God forbids it. Back to Gain, he says, The changing of the bread on the Sabbath is crucial for the meaning of the bread, not only because the weekly rather than daily performance of the ritual shows a distancing from anthropomorphism. Again, the gods, in ancient Near Eastern thought the gods need to be sustained every day. Every day they would do this. Not so in Israelite thought. 
they not only forbid, you know, getting carried away again, this over anthropomorphizing of, of what's going on here. And, and, and you know, they, they eliminate certain parts of it, but they don't even do it every day. And Gaines says this is significant because this is a link, a positive link to the Sabbath, which carries theological freight of its own, especially the idea of creation, because the Sabbath is connected to creation. And from this point, Gaines notes the work of Weinfeld uh, between creation and Sabbath in Genesis and the tabernacle and the temple. I'm going to give you just a, a quick list from Weinfeld because these are these are kind of interesting. Now, Weinfeld has further developed the link between creation and the tabernacle temple. His main points are as follows. Number one, God's dwelling in his sanctuary is considered as rest. Okay, obviously Sabbath, rest. Psalm 132.8 says, Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place. Okay, you and the ark of your might. So this is a place of rest. This is parallel to the concept of the sanctuary in the ancient Near East and to the seventh, seventh day's rest in Genesis. So Psalm 132 thinks of the holy place, the holy of holies as a place of rest. And, and, and Weinfeld's point is because it's described as, as a place of rest, it links the tabernacle and, and the later temple back to the creation week, God resting on the seventh day. If you've read Walton's book, on you know the the lost world of Genesis one, where where creation is really about God preparing, you know, building and preparing His own temple, you know, come to Earth. You're, you're tracking on this right away. Number two from Weinfeld, the completion of the tabernacle parallels Exodus thirty one twelve through seventeen, just as it comes at the end of the creation week in Genesis two two and three. So he's noting the parallel. Oh, isn't it interesting? that we get the Sabbath mentioned at the end of God's work on creation, and we get the Sabbath mentioned at the end of the building of the tabernacle. Might that be intentional? And Weinfeld says, yeah, it is. And, and Gain, of course, agrees. And I, again, to me, this is, this is quite coherent. The seventh day, this is number three, the seventh day as the day of completion appears both in the tabernacle accounts, it's Exodus 24, 15 and following, and in the creation stories. Number four, in the ancient Near East, creation and temple building are associated with the notion of enthronement. Now, just recall for a moment, if that sounds a little odd, just recall that Sinai and the tabernacle and the temple are God's home. Okay, and in God's home is where he rules. It's a throne room as well. It's not just a living room or a man cave you know, for the deity. It's a throne room. It's all these things. The cosmic mountain, if you've, read, if you've read Unseen Realm, it's God's home and the place from which he governs, okay? So the, this, again, this idea with creation and you know, resting and then the same kind of language used of the tabernacle and Sinai and the temple, again, this is intentional. Lastly, number five, creation and the enthronement of God are tied together in the Old Testament. You get this in Psalm 93, Psalm uh, 29 verse 3 and verse 10 in Psalm 29 as well. The fact that bread, in other words, basic food, is placed upon the golden table inside the sanctuary suggests a more intrinsic connection with creation. That is, Yahweh as the creator continues to provide for and sustain his creatures. 
However, as the creator, Yahweh admits no dependence on human beings. Quote, Were I hungry, I would not tell you, for mine is the world and all it holds. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of he goats? That's Psalm 1, 12-13. Accordingly, while the bread is continually placed on his table to show that the covenant and his creative power are ongoing, Yahweh consumes none of it but assigns it to those who carry out ministry on behalf of his people, who provided the offering in the first place. Because of the covenant with Yahweh, Israel is privileged to have the creator-provider residing among them. That's the end of Gaines in the summary of Weinfeld. So, something as seemingly ordinary as a few loaves of bread in the holy place turn out to be very pregnant with meaning. There's a distinction and a distancing of Yahweh, the God of Israel, from other ancient Near Eastern gods by virtue of what is done and not done with the bread and with the table and with the vessels and utensils and so on and so forth, you know, with these objects. It conveys the notion that Yahweh is self-sustaining and he continues as the creator and the original provider, he continues to provide sustenance of the creation and for his people, independent of them. There is no dependence. So, again, all of it is designed to make a theological statement. It's theological messaging. This is, again, what we need to have our eye on when it comes to ritual text just generally. But you know, here, it's a good example. Let's move to the menorah, or the, the golden lampstand. This is Exodus 25, 31 through 40. And let's just briefly, we'll read some of that. This is very, very detailed here, but read part of it. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out of one side of it, three branches on the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower, on one branch. And three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. And so on and so forth. So the the rest of it is descriptive of these, of the decorations and the branches. Uh, You get down to verse 37. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them which is being shown you on the mountain. So I want to start with Sarna here. Sarna has, again, just a few initial observations and some things that are worth pointing out that will kind of set up what I want to do in a moment here. Sarna, in his Exodus commentary, writes this. He says, No lampstand that incorporates all or even most of the features of the tabernacle menorah has yet been uncovered in the in the Near East. Now, let me just stop there. That, that's going to be significant because you're going to have various scholarly attempts to say that the lampstand of, of Israel was patterned after something else, the tree of life in Mesopotamia or something else. So Sarna's first statement here, I think, is noteworthy that as of as of contemporary times, there's been no archaeological artifact discovered in any of these civilizations that accounts for most or, or of course, all of the features of the tabernacle menorah. It's different, is the point. 
The famous menorah relief, this is Sarna now again, on the Arch of Titus cannot be used to reconstruct that of the tabernacle. Why? It deviates in important details from the prescriptions given here in Exodus, from the rabbinic sources, and from the account of Josephus, who was himself a priest and very likely actually saw the menorah in Herod's temple. The Roman artist may have changed some details for his own aesthetic purposes, or he may have used a model other than that of the temple. Moreover, it is likely that Herod's menorah, dating from at least 1,000 years after the one in the tabernacle, was itself the product of change and development. The menorah prescribed here in Exodus is not an idealized retrojection from the furniture in Solomon's temple. Let me just stop there, because a, a lot of scholars will say that. Uh, there wasn't really an Exodus. Uh, there wasn't really a tabernacle or an ark or any of this stuff. Later on, you know, when you know, hundreds of years later, the time of Solomon, you know, then you get this stuff, and then then the writers of Solomon's day sort of make up a fable or a story way back in the you know the, in earlier times, you know, inventing the story about Moses, and then they retroject, they they take all these objects and put them back in later you know, earlier history, and it's all just a fairy tale. Uh, Sarna is specifically denying that, and, and he has a good reason for it too. It says the menorah prescribed here is not an idealized retrojection from the furniture in Solomon's temple. The narrative in Kings that depicts the construction of the temple does not mention such a cultic object. Did you catch that? There is no menorah. There is no golden lampstand in the temple, so it can't be a retrojection. Rather, Solomon's temple has ten lampstands fashioned for that edifice. They are not clearly described unlike this section of Exodus, which is very detailed. And there's no evidence, Sarna says, that they were of the branched type. The ones in, in Solomon's temple don't match. Also, they were manufactured of solid gold. Hebrew, The Hebrew there is Zahav Sagor, whereas the tabernacle was made of pure gold, Zahav Tahor. The difference in technical terminology is significant. The former term is of Akkadian origin and indicates a northern source for the gold. The latter term is much closer to Egyptian metallurgic nomenclature, suggesting a more local southern provenance. And let me just jump in here. Yeah, and, and again, an Egyptian flavoring to this. If you were retrojecting, if you were making up you know, the, the story of deliverance from Egypt, you know, would you really think of details like that? As Sarna, that's his suggestion. Other affinities, Sarna says, with Egypt are also discernible. The term for the shaft, Hebrew kaneh, means reed or cane plant. It usually appears in the Bible in Egyptian context, for the reed flourishes in Egyptian marshlands. The word here translated cups, Hebrew gaviah, is probably of Egyptian origin, and other Pentateuchal usages also have an Egyptian context. Above all, it is the extraordinary cluster of botanical terms and motifs that provides the strongest evidence of the world of ancient Egypt, where art and architecture are distinguished by renditions of plant life. Typical are the tree-like columns with their floral decorations on the capitals. Now, that's the end of Sarna. It's very clear. He thinks that the, not just the lampstand, but other things, because we, we, we quoted from him when we were talking about the Ark of the Covenant, that it all has an Egyptian flavoring. And again, I, it's hard to, to resist that notion. There are scholars who are not retrojecting skeptics, though, who, who don't actually think that the lampstand 
uh, is Egyptian in orientation, though. We're going to get to one of those in a moment. So, I mean, you could argue that the tabernacle's description of the menorah's gold makeup and, and, and it's the way it's decorated attaches the, that narrative, that description to Egypt. You could argue that. After all, you know, Ark of the Covenant being modeled on certain aspects of Egyptian palanquins, like we talked about in the last episode. Okay, you know, the, it, it would make sense to have an Egyptian context, especially if you have artisans who learned their craft in Egypt and were doing stuff for the Egyptians. They would know how to do this. It, it, would, it would feel normal. However, again, there's going to be one notable example, Rachel Hachlili, uh, her work. She's a skeptic of all this, and she has done the most exhaustive work on the temple menorah, the, the golden lampstand, to date. And so we'll get to her in a moment, but I'm just telling you that it, it sounds like, and again, I'm not saying you can't, it sounds like you can make a good argument here for an Egyptian orientation again. You, you could. But there are other things, again, that, that Hachlili you know, will point out that make her at least, and she's not alone, but make her at least a bit skeptical of how, how much we want to press this point. That, that's probably a fair way of saying it. But for now, let, let's just track a little bit on the Egyptian idea. Let, let's just go down that road and see how, again, it, it, it could be coherent, you know, in, in a different respect, you know, with the theological messaging. So the Egyptian elements, if they're there, if they're legitimate, are important. Uh, internet researchers, you know, and village atheists, you know, love to say that the menorah is a copy of the Mesopotamian tree of life. And they they do this, they, they, they want to argue that because that lets them, they think in their heads, connect the menorah to the Asherah poles and Ishtar and other Mesopotamian goddesses and all this kind of stuff. So at the very least, know that you know, there's, the Mesopotamian angle doesn't really work here because you've got all this Egyptian stuff. So that's one thing to point out, again, for the internet people and the village atheists that, that do their research on the internet. All of that Mesopotamian arguing back to a representation of the goddess in the tabernacle. That's where, that's where they want to go. All of that is completely unnecessary and it's incoherent. In general terms, while the menorah deserves to be connected to the Genesis tree of life, again, you can make that argument. It's, it's at least some kind of tree shape. The Egyptian elements are sufficient for that connection. You don't need Mesopotamia at all. If you understand what Egyptian temples we're, we're trying to convey their theology. You don't need Mesopotamia at all. Now, I'm going to reference uh, an article here uh, by uh, Baines on uh, Egyptian temple symbolism. I'm just going to read a paragraph from it. If, if you were if you were looking at a again, it's it's hard to, to visualize this maybe, but at the at the entrance to an Egyptian temple, they would have these pylons, these these really tall like doorway structures. Okay. And you would go in, there would be this long hallway. Archaeologists refer to it as the hypostyle hallway. You have these huge columns on either side, okay? And you would, you would keep going down this and maybe pass through another set of doors, you know, another set or a couple sets until you, you get to the inner sanctuary, the, the Holy of Holies, as it were. And inside that sanctuary, behind the doors, you would have the, the gold figure of the deity, you know, an idol, okay? What you don't realize is that when you were walking, you would be actually going up. There, there's, there, there were, with Egyptian temples, there was always a slight incline on the way to the deity. And that's because the, the, the statue of the deity would either be placed on a mound of dirt or in a little ship, like, like on a mound, okay? Because what, what an Egyptian temple commemorated was the rise of the earth from the 
original creation sea, you know, the, 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 the watery abyss, that when the, when the mound, the, the original mound, the primeval mound surfaces from the water and creates the earth, and the deity is, is there with it and on it. This is what it's trying to, it's trying to take your mind as an Egyptian back to the creation moment, the primeval mound. And this is why the hypostyle hallway, the columns there, would be decorated with, you guessed it, marsh vegetation. Okay, flowers, lotus flowers, papyrus reeds, all this kind of stuff, because you were you were journeying through the waters of the marsh to the primeval mound where cre- the creation moment and the deity respond as you know it is waiting for you. So what Bane's here. The hypostyle hall exhibits the greatest condensation of symbolism. Apart from cosmographic features on its walls and ceilings, the capitals of the columns locate it within the horizontally ordered cosmographic scheme. The commonest designs for capitals are papyrus, umbels, and lotus flowers, so that by implication, the columns themselves are the stems of aquatic plants. The shape of the column may mimic a plant in several ways. Apart from allusions to the origin of stone architecture in flimsier materials, this means that the hall is a symbolic primeval swamp out of which the mound of the sanctuary emerges. Okay. That's from Bain's article on Egyptian symbolism, the temple symbolism. So it could be that the decoration of the plant, the tree, okay, the, 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 the golden lampstand, you know, that, that has, you know, again, you, you can make a good argument that, that the decorations are very Egyptian in orientation, that what's being commemorated by the, by the presence of the lamp is, guess what? The presence of the creator. You don't need Mesopotamian Ishtar worship to understand, uh, you know, to, to, to align, that's a better way to say it, to align the tabernacle symbolism with something in the ancient Near East that makes sense, given the Exodus story, and that would be Egypt. Okay, so this other trajectory is, is quite a bit contrived. And we'll, 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 we'll return to this point a little bit later, because again, Hakleli is going to argue that for more uniqueness, uh, than somebody like Sarno or someone who favors an Egyptian view would, would give the, the temple lampstand or the tabernacle lampstand. And she's got some very specific disconnects with the Mesopotamian stuff. So that's the Egyptian perspective. And, and again, it's coherent. You can see how it would work, so on and so forth. But let's go again to the to the Mesopotamian idea and its problems. Just spend a little more time on that. Now, there are two major studies on the menorah. Uh, Carol Myers, Carol L. Myers has a book on it, The Tabernacle Menorah, a synthetic study of a symbol from the biblical cult. This is Gorgias Press. That's actually a reprint, uh, 2003 reprint, 270 or so pages. Anything Gorgias publishes is going to be expensive. I'm just telling you, so get prepared for sticker shock if you ever go look this up. Uh, the other one is Rachel Hakhlili, entitled The Menorah, The Ancient Seven-Armed Candelabrum. Subtitle, Origin, Form, and Significance. This is a Brill title, and Brill books are also very expensive. This is three times the length of Myers, though. This is the most exhaustive study of the Golden Lampstand Menorah throughout its history and time that there is in print. Uh, I should say, well, it's out of print now, but you can probably you know, find it used somewhere. 
Now, my copy of Hakhlili is packed because my library is packed. I can't quote Myers directly, but Hakhlili does some of that for me. So I'm going to stick with you know, notes that I have from Hakhlili's book and just go with that. So she writes the following. Uh, this is pages 35 through 38. Myers contends that the description of the tabernacle menorah has a connection and cultural affinities with Egypt. So Myers is in the Egypt camp. She also alludes to this in her interpretation of Kaneh, the reed, as the plant growing in the swamps of the Nile. Note, however, she says, Hakwili says, that Egyptian decoration consists mainly of lotus and papyrus plants rather than the flowered capital feature on the menorah. She's going to say, well, yeah, okay, there's plant decorations, just like the Egyptians would do, but they aren't the precise Egyptian decorations. They're, they're different, okay? So Hakhlili is, you know, goes on in her work, and she's skeptical that the tabernacle menorah is strictly modeled after anything in Egypt. She's also skeptical that it's an ancient Near Eastern stylized tree drawing from Mesopotamia. And so she writes the following. Again, just sort of to summarize her thoughts. The origin and original meaning of the menorah have been discussed extensively. Basing his argument on the clay lamps with seven wicks, Albright, back in 1932, maintained erroneously that the seven-branched menorah can be traced back to the land of Israel in the Iron Age. Some scholars argue that the menorah's form originally represented and has close morphological connections with the stylized tree motif, the tree of life in ancient art, specifically from the early periods of Syria and Mesopotamia especially Sumerian representations. The sacred tree held an important place in nearly every sanctuary throughout the land and frequently determined the character of the site, the sites being named after trees. And all that's true, she says. Good enough maintained that the menorah was originally a tree, reflecting the older representation of the tree. In the menorah, the tree as a symbol of life, it was made a bearer of lights. That's, she's quoting good enough there. Some argue that the ancient Near Eastern monuments and seals of the late Bronze Age can thus be seen as symbolic expression of the existence of sustaining plant life. So all, all this is part of you know, a Mesopotamian trajectory. Hakhlili continues, The concept of the tree of life, or a sacred tree, appears in various myths in antiquity and is represented in ancient art, especially in the Near East, as a religious and mythological symbol. It probably lost its significance in the later Hellenistic Roman world. Yarden contends that this stylized divine tree and the fruit of life eventually became a burning tree, a tree of light and a cosmic tree, a symbol of life and immortality, so on and so forth. And then she, she goes through a whole bunch of these, and she says, well, here's why I don't buy it. <laughs> she says, the following reasons undermine the theory of comparing the menorah to a stylized ancient Near Eastern tree. Number one. The menorah arms, according to the Exodus description, are formed with reeds. They are hollow pipes and not branches, thereby precluding any plant or arboreal theme. Number two, comparable material for the decorative elements can be discerned in examples from the land of Israel and Syria. Accordingly, the influence and origin should be sought in those regions rather than in Egypt or Mesopotamia. Third, the prototype, excuse me, the prototype of tree motif in the ancient Near East usually contains a triple motif 
of a tree flanked by antithetical animals and sometimes celestial symbols. And again, she has very, I'll just cut in here. She has various illustrations of this. And you, you probably have seen a number of these where, you know, there's this ancient Mesopotamian or Sumerian tree and you got like two ibexes or something on either side and they're climbing up that or they're doing something or they got lions and whatever. She, this is typical to have a tree with, with animals on either side. Sometimes you'll have astro, astronomical, astrological, celestial symbols on either side or above the tree. So she's saying, this is what you're typically looking at. Back to Chakluli. Myers asserts that these motifs are different in shape, form, and theme from the seven-armed menorah described in literature and in artistic examples, which is why Myers opts for the Egyptian model. The tree is a simple stylized plant, often more or less with seven branches. It appears in various cultic scenes with no comparable scenes in ancient Israelite art. And basically her point is that we don't have the animals either. So we, we not only – what's built in Israel just doesn't match. You would think if they were trying to strike something with Mesopotamia, it, it would have at least been decorated with animals or something. Okay, but it's not. Number fourth, the menorah also contains elements symbolic of light. The Mesopotamian stylized tree has no such qualities. Number five. The seven-armed menorah is a unique form, though based on Near Eastern traditional decorative elements of candelabra and cult vessels in the Iron Age. So her point there is that you don't need to look for trees. This is just a bigger version of something that you can find in ancient Syria and Israel. You don't need to go to Egypt or Mesopotamia. So her conclusion is this. Thus, the quite common suggestion that the menorah in earliest times may have reflected the shape of a plant or a tree seems to have evolved owing to the association of the menorah with the mistranslation of the Hebrew word kaneh, read as branch. She's saying this is all due to a mistranslation of translating kaneh as branch, which makes people think of trees. She, she adds, its form has become too stylized to allow for ancient associations to have survived. The menorah as a unique form with its inherent symbolism of light is not expressing vegetation or plant life, or she would add, you know, the, the primeval mound or, or any of that. She says, this is going to sound a little goofy, but the golden lampstand is there to convey the notion of light. God as light, or let there be light. That's it. She's saying we don't need to look for trees. We don't need to look for primeval mounds. There's, there are disconnections with both Egypt and Mesopotamia. Why are we doing this? This is just a bigger version of candelabra you will find elsewhere in Syria and in, in ancient Israel. You will find these things. And the whole notion is light. <laughs> Which, when you think about it, well, Maybe that's kind of self-evident. So she is, again, on the other side of this. So Myers is representative, and Sarna of the, let, let's get an Egyptian orientation to this thing. And, and Hakhlili's like, no, we don't need any of that. So a few mop-up notes here. Hakhlili's extensive work includes detailed study of the vocabulary of the lampstand description. And she compares it to later sources. She doesn't believe, for instance, that the lampstand in the tabernacle had seven arms. She says that the narrative says six, that's what it has. She doesn't count the central shaft as an arm, but acknowledges that other scholars do. And then there's the reference in Zechariah 4 too. 
And he said to me, what do you see? I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold with a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, and seven lips on each of the lamps. Okay, so on and so forth. So she's saying that, look, what, what what's being described in Zechariah is not the same as what was in the tabernacle back in Exodus. Okay, that, that one had six branches. Whatever's going on in Zechariah had seven. And later, Menorah copied what's going on in Zechariah. She agrees as well with Josephus has this comment that the, the menorah, the lampstand in Herod's temple had 70 parts or elements. Like if you took it apart, there were 70 distinct, you know, elements to it. And Hakwili agrees with that. And in her book, she actually goes through the Exodus narrative and shows how you can get the number 70 for its constituent elements, which is kind of interesting. You know, 70 completion, wholeness again. You know, taking it back to creation of the Sabbath, there you go. You know, it, again, you, you often don't see that. But again, Josephus made the comment, and she says he was right. Uh, Hachlili also disagrees with scholars like Sarna, who say that, that Solomon's temple didn't have the tabernacle lampstand, but instead had ten menorahs. You remember we read that from Sarna. She writes this, and here's her counter-argument to that. She writes, C.L. Myers contends that the menorah envisioned by Zechariah cannot be identified with the tabernacle menorah. And so she concludes that the second temple menorah bore a closer resemblance to the tabernacle menorah than to the menorah in Solomon's temple. So she takes the Zechariah thing a little bit differently than Hakwili would. Hakwili adds, it's difficult to accept Myers' thesis. The Bible states that all the tabernacle cult vessels of the tent of meeting were transferred to Solomon's temple at its inauguration. And she quotes 1 Kings 8, 4 here, which says, And they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tent of meeting, and all the holy vessels that were in the tent. The priests and the Levites brought them up. So basically, Chachlili is saying, look, okay, we don't get the golden lampstand mentioned in the temple. We get the, these ten going on, but you got 1 Kings 8, 4 that says that, that all the stuff in the tent was brought into the temple. So she she doesn't buy, again, that particular sort of you know argument on Sarna's part. Anyway, just, just a few other things that she's you know sort of tracking on or, or positions that she has. Now her bone to pick in this verse, admittedly, you know, really lands on is the lampstand to be considered a vessel? You know, you could quibble about that, but 1 Kings 8, 4 nevertheless does say that all Everything in the tent, the tent's the tabernacle, okay, was brought into the temple. So it seems like she has a good argument there, or at least a, a defensible one. So after all that, what does Hakwili, if she's the, the, you know, done the most exhaustive research here, what does she think the whole thing means? What does she think the menorah means? Well, I've already hinted at it. This, the light is a big deal. So we have to recognize, you know, and I'm just summarizing her, that a lot of the tradition that you get in Judaism both in terms of the Second Temple period and later, the rabbinic era, and on into more modern times. A lot of the tradition does not go back to the original tabernacle menorah, but it goes to the Second Temple menorah and, and stuff that Josephus would be talking about, like in Herod's Temple. And even later, there are specimens of three, five, nine, and eleven armed menorah, the menorot, that have been found in the land of Israel in the diaspora and on clay lamps. Most of those found in the land of Israel have five arms. <laughs> you know, so so even even back to the Second Temple period, they didn't have a strict template for depicting this, which is her point. 
Now, she writes the following here. The Bible relates in detail the function of the menorah in the rituals of the tabernacle and of Solomon's temple. In the tabernacle, the priest Aaron was charged with the duty of tending the menorah. Tradition seems to relate that the menorah was kept lit only at night. Quote, and Aaron shall burn fragrance, fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps in the evening, he shall burn it. So it's Exodus 27, 20 through 21. There's other references in Leviticus and Numbers and so on and so forth. She continues, in the temple, the menorah was lit by the priest as an important ceremonial element during the daily ritual, regularly in the evening and in the morning, according to the biblical text. In the morning, the menorah was cleaned, the wicks were trimmed, and the fresh oil was added. The menorah lamps were apparently lit at dusk by the high priest and burned during the night. Here's 2 Chronicles 13.11 for that. It says, They offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings and incense of sweet spices. Set out the showbread on the table of pure gold, and care for the golden lampstand that its lamps may burn every evening. For we keep the charge of the Lord our God, but you have forsaken him. Second Chronicles 13.11 So her take on that verse and the earlier, you know, marrying it to the earlier verse you know, from Exodus is that the lampstand was not kept burning 24-7, 365. It was, it was lit you know, every night. In the second temple period, though, things were a little bit different. There are second century BC sources, Hecateus is one that she quotes, that likewise relate that the lampstand at Jerusalem had a lamp which was never extinguished by day or night. That's a quote. There are sources like that. Josephus notes that the three lamps were left burning by day. So in the second temple period, it was sort of a 24 7, 365 thing, but in the Old Testament period, it wasn't. So does the discrepancy mean anything? You know, why the discrepancy between the biblical record, Second Temple sources? You know, was there a difference in the ritual? Again, Hakalili doesn't, she says, you know, we can't really know for sure, but there was apparently some difference. She says the ritual apparently changed during the Second Temple and the priests lit it during the day. You know, uh, they, they, just, they just kept it burning. So the question is, well, why would they do that? Again, you know, who knows? Maybe it had something to do with coming out of the exile that we're going to keep the lampstand burning because that's a that, that's a figure it's a it's a symbol of our hope that you know the lord will be with us every moment of every day from here on out you know because you know we you know we sinned and we went into exile and the lord brought us back and so on and so forth maybe that's it maybe there's something theologically or religiously or psychologically going on there but again at the end of the day we don't we don't completely know so as to meaning, you know, to wrap up our episode here, this is what Harkleli, uh, again, some of her concluding thoughts. As noted previously, scholars differ as to the significance and interpretation of the menorah. In ancient sources, it is considered the symbol of God on the basis of, of sources like Josephus, Philo, and rabbinic literature. These maintain that the menorah was a religious sign, the symbol of God himself by virtue of its lights, like, like God is light or something. Philo argues that the menorah symbolizes heaven meaning specifically the planetary system, seven planets, you know, the six arms of the center base. You know, Philo goes off on a you know, real kind of wild trajectory. But it, it, it's, it may not be as wild as you think, because if the tabernacle is a microcosm of the macrocosm, you know, the creation and earth you know, is, is the Lord's footstool or, or his residence or whatever, and, and 
that's the culminating moment of creation when everything is created. You know, there were there were Jews, you know, who would argue that that the the tabernacle and, and the temple was was a a microcosm of the universe that Yahweh had created. And so this this talk about the planets, you could you could see how that would make sense, you know, to to Jews who were thinking in these terms at, at that time. Other sources argue that the menorah is equated with God leading Israel as a pillar of fire. The light symbolizes the Shekinah, or the Shekinah as it's often pronounced today. The menorah was a reflection of the heavenly menorah, indicating the light of the law. That's another view. The menorah was significant for Jewish piety and great variety of senses, but essentially as a mystic symbol of light and life, God present and manifest in the world, through which the Jew hopes for immortality. And she's just summarizing different views. Now, personally, and I'm going to agree with where she lands, because it, again, it's the simplest, it's Occam's razor here. I think that the creation context of the bread of the presence actually helps us here. At least it helps by analogy and prevents us from overreaching the few data we have in regard to what the meaning of the lampstand was. 1 Samuel 3.3 calls the menorah the lamp or the light of God. By analogy, the bread is the life sustenance brought forth by the Creator. So it would stand to reason that the menorah harkens back to God calling light out of darkness. In other words, if the bread harkens back to, because it's linked to the Sabbath, remember that, Okay, if, if the bread harkens back to the creator providing physical sustenance for his creation and maintaining that, then it would stand to reason that the, the, the menorah, the light of the menorah, harkens back to God calling light out of darkness. In other words, as the bread takes us back to creation, so does the menorah. At least, again, to, to me anyway, that seems sensible. And this is sort of where Hakakakliuli lands. God is the source of both. Light is essential for life. Think of the sun, the main light bearer. You've got to have, got to have light for life. And so the presence of light is as important as the bread to reinforce creation imagery, which is important for making the holy place, you know, this microcosm of the created universe, which is God's domain. The creator has come to abide with his people. You know, again, thinking back to you know God's original plan. You know, what, what was Eden? God wants a human family. He creates embodied humans. That means they can't come to Him. He has to come to them. For them to live, they're not spiritual beings. They need a physical place to live. They need it to be habitable, capable of sustaining life. This is what Genesis is about. Okay, Genesis isn't answering our questions. It, it, it's telegraphing important theological ideas, like. You know, who God is, what his intention is, you know, what, what does creation mean? Why did he bother? You know, all the, these sorts of big picture things. And when you start linking language in Genesis to the tabernacle and to its furnishings, that tells you something. It tells you, okay, maybe it's a little overstated to say that the tabernacle or the temple was a microcosm of the universe. Okay, maybe that's a little overstated, but, but it's not overstated to say that the temple and the tabernacle were supposed to be analogies to the creator living with his people, living with humans at creation, which was his original desire and plan and design. It's supposed to make you think, these two things connected, are supposed to make you think of God's purpose, what God wants. And the creation, the fact that God acted the way he did, creating us, creating, giving us a habitable world, and being ever-present to sustain it. 
at the very least, that's what the tabernacle is supposed to make you think of. And again, when you get into the bread imagery, and even even the light imagery, I mean, who you know, you have the priesthood involved. And we're believer priests. You know, we partake of these things. God is there to sustain us. He's not there to have us sustain him. And these are big picture theological items that you can get legitimately. You don't have to make this stuff up. You just observe the hey, there are connections between the tabernacle stuff and the creation week. Again, that's intentional. It means something. It's not contrived because the vocabulary is the same. And you have really things that you can't miss, like Sabbath and light, okay, that, that connect the two things. So I think, you know, at the end of the day, that's what these objects are really here for. Again, to remind us of those truths. And again, you, it looks kind of ordinary. Okay, you got, you need a source of light. You got some bread there. You know, big deal. Well, theologically, in terms of the messaging for Israel, in their context, it, it said a lot. And it, it was a pretty big deal. All right, Mike. Well, what can we expect from Exodus 26? Short answer is I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, well, I, you know, the whole chapter is about the tabernacle. So I, I think at the very least, I may want to talk a little bit about something I brought up in Unseen Realm, um, sort of the views of how of, of the tabernacle construction, maybe, um, and whether the whether the this, this is the big issue, whether the tent would have fit into the temple itself. For those who have read Unseen Realm, there's a little bit you know, that I put on, uh, in there on that. There's some verses in the Old Testament that suggest that the tent was literally like moved in between the cherubim, you know, right there at the throne, so that the ark would be God's footstool and he would be seated above the greater cherubim. That was his seat now, and the ark was his footstool. And, then, and the, the whole thing was like moved inside. Depending on the way you think you interpret the construction instructions, you can you can match the dimensions. You can do that, but it's controversial. So I'll probably say a little bit about that. But other than that, um, I'm not sure where I'm where where I'm going to land as far as uh, chapter 26, or even if we'll just run on into chapter 27. I don't know yet. We might do 26 and 27 together. We'll find out. All right, we'll be looking forward to that. That'll probably be about three weeks, three episodes from now, because next week we're going to check in uh, live with Mike at the uh, conferences to see how things are going. And then on our 300th episode, we're going to do a Q&A for that one. Nothing mm -hmm. special, but we will be doing a Q&A. And then after that, we'll get back into Exodus. So uh, we'll be looking forward to your update uh, on the conferences. So have a safe day yeah. and all that. And, uh, don't, don't forget, we're yeah. not going to be there, so don't be looking for us. <laughs> Unless you see yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. know, ducking in and out. Yeah, like if you, there you go. You see me, say hi. There you go. <laughs> All right, Mike. Well, with that, I want to thank you, everybody, for listening to the Make a Bubble Podcast. God bless. Thanks for listening to the Naked Bible Podcast. To support this podcast, visit www.nakedbibleblog.com. To learn more about Dr. Heiser's other websites and blogs, go to www.drmsh.com.